There we go. So here we are. Um, and normally I like to like open with like a story or like a song lyric or something. But we're not doing that. We're just jumping right in. Because this question tonight, Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? This question invites us to see how Jesus responds to our failure and to see how Jesus uses our failure. So he responds to our failure and he uses our failure. And, and, and we think about failure a lot. And, and failure is one of those things that we're kind of like mortified of. Like you think about failure. I know enough of you in here are perfectionists. And so the thought of like even a 99 is like devastating. Some of you are like, some of you are like shaking your heads like, no, that's not me. And like, I, y'all are the ones that I know it is you. Um, but this story by the sea, it takes place um, a short period of time after Jesus' resurrection. Like last week we looked at the resurrection and what it means and how it changes everything. But to really understand what's happening here, we need to understand what's happened in the last two to three weeks. Um, Jesus is eating with his disciples a couple weeks before. They're in the upper room. Jesus is eating with his disciples and he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And that, and that really all the disciples will fall away. And the, everybody's kind of skeptical, like, oh, is it me? Am I going to be the one that betrays Jesus? But, but Peter does this thing where Peter's like, I will never do that. I will never be the one to abandon you. And Jesus is like, Peter, before the end of tonight, you're going to do it three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then in John 18, you read the story. And pay attention to the details as you read that story. Because there are three things that are important. All the disciples have scattered except for Peter. Jesus is on trial and Peter's kind of hanging out by where everything's going down. And he's close enough that he can hear it. He's close enough that he can actually see Jesus. And so as he's doing this, he finds himself sitting by a charcoal fire. And the Bible's actually very clear that it is a charcoal fire. It's not a wood fire. It's a charcoal fire. And three different times in this story, people ask Peter, hey, don't you know this guy? Weren't you one of his followers? And Peter's like, no, I never met him. I have no, I don't know, like one time he even calls curses down upon himself. He's like, if I'm lying, like may I be cursed. And the, and the third time that Peter denies Jesus, the rooster crows. And in one of the other gospel accounts, uh, the Bible actually tells us that when that happened, Jesus and Peter actually made eye contact. And Jesus saw it. But again, three details here that are really important. There's the charcoal fire. There are the three denials. And then there's the break of dawn. Right? So it happens and then the day starts. So Peter and Jesus make eye contact and Peter just, Peter just absolutely breaks. He falls apart. The Bible tells us he went out and he wept bitterly because he knew what he had done. And in this time, since Jesus has died and risen again, Peter's maybe seen him a couple of times, but, but he's still, still feeling pretty bad about what he's done. So he leaves. He goes back home to Galilee and he's fishing. And this is not... Uh, this is not fishing like um, like Jackson and his boys are going to do this weekend when they get back home, just spend the day out on the boat enjoying the water. This is this is Peter going back to his old life. We actually see it when Jesus sits down with him at the uh, at the fire. He doesn't call him Simon Peter; he calls him Simon, son of John, which was Peter's actual name before Jesus changed his name. But what Peter has done is is almost like he's saying, 
I have failed at this Christian life thing. I've failed Jesus so greatly, so badly, that I'm just going home to go back to what I know. And what's funny about that is Peter, the expert fisherman, is out all night fishing and he catches nothing. He can't catch anything. And all of a sudden, this mysterious figure standing on the beach is there and it takes them a minute, but they realize it's Jesus. And when Peter gets to the shore, what do we find? We find a charcoal fire. We find three questions from the Lord and we find the break of dawn. So I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is recreating the scene of Peter's greatest failure and shame. And think for a second about think for a second about how your senses can take you back somewhere. Like a lot of times there will be a smell that will uh, that will trigger a memory. Um, for me, and this is going to sound weird, uh, but for me, um, it is the smell of cigarette smoke on a warm summer night. Everybody's like, wow, that's confusing. A little bit. But, um, but the reason it does that is because when I was a kid, um, we, would all, we would go to these family reunions every year. And the highlight of the family reunion is my cousins and my uncles would get out guitars when the sun went down. And they would sit around and they would smoke cigarettes and they would play and sing songs late into the night. And so when you get that warm weather and you get that cigarette smoke, I'm taken back to a kid listening to my cousins and uncles sing like cool old gospel songs, but also songs that they had written about ways that I learned the history of my family that I wouldn't have through other conversations. And you probably have some other things like that too. I mean, um, yeah, you probably do, whatever, whatever they are. Something that reminds you of home, something that reminds you of something uh, pleasant, something you would like to go back to. But we also know that the same senses can bring back really, really bad and really tragic memories. And that's what's probably happening here with Peter, that Peter sees the fire and he hears Jesus asking the question and, he, and he's distraught. And then day breaks. And look, we all, we all have this thing that we wish we could forget, right? We all have this thing that we've done, maybe something that's happened to us, maybe both, that we wish that we could just erase from our memories and never have to deal with that again. For Peter, it's obviously denying Jesus in his greatest moment of need. <clears throat> but for us, it might be the relationship that we know that we ruined, it may be the person that we used. It may be um, the sex that we had, the drugs that we used, the websites that we frequent. We all have something that we wish we could forget, something we wish we could just move on from. So the question is, what do you, what do, you do with that? What do you do with that thing? How do you cope with it? And we do it in a lot of ways, right? We, we, love, to, we love to try to forget it. Right, if, I can just, if I can just forget that this happened, if I can just move on, leave it in the past and go do something else, maybe we can, maybe we can numb it. You know, maybe we can run away from that with uh, things that just make us not feel. Maybe if we think we can work hard enough or be good enough that we can somehow repay that debt. Right? If you, you know that feeling if you've ever laid in your bed at night and, and told God that, God, if you will just forgive me for this, I will never do it again. Then how much worse does it make you feel the next time that you do it, right? 
I think that's what Peter's doing by returning to his old life. He's saying, I failed at this Christian life thing. I failed at being a follower of Jesus. And so I'm just going to go back and fish because that's what I know. So think for a second about your ideal self. Um, like, like, who is it that, like, who would you be if that thing that you want to forget, like, if that never happened, and if, like, all of your hopes and dreams came true, like, like, who, like, who would your ideal self be, right? Like, my, my ideal self, my ideal self gets up at 4.30 every morning. Um, he, he reads his Bible. Uh, he prays. He meditates before excitedly and wistfully driving off to the gym to go and have a good, get a good sweat in and have a good workout. And then he comes home to enjoy a cup of coffee and 30 minutes of quiet as he prepares for his family to wake up to be an excellent father, right? To be, to be present with his children and to care for his wife, to be just the, the husband and the father of the year. Before I head to Maples to, to prayerfully study and carefully craft a sermon to give to you on Monday night, to pastor and to counsel all of you in a prayerful and thoughtful way. And then I return home to be present with my children again, to play with my kids, to care for my wife before going to bed at a reasonable hour to do the 4.30 again the next day. Here's the problem with that. That has never once happened. (laughs) That is not me. My actual self is selfish. I can, I can barely roll out of bed before, before maybe getting around to checking off the boxes of Bible study and prayer, before I go to the gym and hate every second of it. I'm terrible attitude. And then I come home, and I'm annoyed that Leah and the kids are awake because I wanted to come home and play on my phone before they bothered me. I wanted to drink my coffee and read whatever Ole Miss message board I'm getting on. And then I leave the house in a rush. I throw a, I throw a sermon together last minute because I've been sitting around being iPad kid all day, if you don't know about iPad Kid, join the group me. Because I even get found out when I'm hiding in Knoxville. And then I get home and I'm still annoyed because I still can't play with my phone uninterrupted. And then I stay up until midnight and I wake up exhausted the next day. But here's here's why that here's why I want you to imagine your ideal self and then compare it to your real self. Because I think. I think about me, myself, and I think you think about yourself this way too. I think that my ideal self is worthy of Jesus' love and my actual self is not. But here's the thing. Jesus does not love the ideal you. Right? Everybody gets a little on it. Jesus doesn't love somebody? No. You know why? Because the ideal you doesn't exist. The ideal you is not real. The ideal me is not real. See, I've never had that ideal day that I just described to you, and you haven't either, whatever it looks like for you. And here's why this matters. It matters because Jesus only loves failures. Jesus does not love success stories because none of us are success stories. (laughs) Jesus only loves failures. And it's only when you come to terms with that that you begin to see how good this news really is. Because Jesus is not content to let you sit in your failure or to leave you alone with it. Back, I remember back my first year, I was sitting with a student who, um, who's no longer here. Um, but uh, he was talking about another, uh, another ministry that he'd been involved in. And, um, 
and, and his mentor, his leader in that ministry, was telling him, he's really struggling with some things in his past, and his mentor was telling him, like, you just got to move on, right? You just got to forget about your past. You got to leave it in the past and move on. But here's the thing. How do you do that? Like, how do you just move on from the unspeakable thing that happened to you that night that nobody else knows about? How do you forget about the nights that you have lied awake in your bed, crying yourself to sleep because you don't know what to do about how much you drink or how much porn you look at or how you've had sex with another person another night in a row and you don't know how to stop? How do you forget that? How do you move on from that? Y'all, you don't. And you don't because Jesus doesn't either. And see, a lot of attention gets paid to, to Jesus asking Peter this question three times, right? Because if, you, like, if you've been around the church for five minutes, some pastor who is probably pretty smart is like, oh, there's, there's actually three different Greek words for love. And like, this word means this, and this word means this. And people are like, oh, that's what's happening here. They weren't speaking Greek. They were sitting by a fire speaking Aramaic. <laughs> so that's irrelevant, What's important is Jesus is asking Peter three times because Peter denied him three times. And Peter needed to know that Jesus saw his failure. Peter needed to know that Jesus had seen him at his lowest moment and loved him anyway. And not in spite of it, not begrudgingly, he loved him because of it. That here, Jesus is caring for and restoring Peter. And the way forward for you and for me and, and all of our failure, whether if you're a Christian tonight and you're still kind of struggling with that thing or, or not yet and you're desperately looking for something and you're, and you're trying to figure out what all of this means, it's not to pretend like it didn't happen. It's not to just move on. It's, just, it's not to you know, write your anxiety on a balloon and release it into the sky or like whatever it is we're doing next Feel Good Friday. It's not to pretend like none of that happened. It is to face your failure. It is to look at it. It is to look at your shame and to overlay it with the grace of Jesus. This is the same Jesus that saw Peter's failure. And what did he do? He restored him by making him breakfast and by spending time with him. And this is the same Jesus who is doing the same thing for you and for your failure. Think about this. This is not... This is not the, the offended party holding the sin or the offense over the head of the offender. This is a vivid, clear picture of two old friends sitting down and sharing a meal together. That's what Jesus longs to do with you. Not in spite of your failure, but because of it. That he wants to meet you in it. That Jesus doesn't do this with guilt Notice he doesn't ask Peter, Peter, do you promise that you will never fail me again? Because if you read on in the Bible, you know that Peter failed again pretty spectacularly. Jesus doesn't make you flog yourself or prove your worth. No, Jesus invites you to sit down at a charcoal fire with fish that he cooked for you. Because Peter failed again, and you're going to fail again too. This is not to excuse your sin. This is not to make light of it. Sin is a big deal and we need to be fighting it. 
But instead of trying our, our hardest to avoid it or forget about it or whatever, Jesus confronts it and he restores us. But this doesn't mean that it's somehow not painful. Right? Confession and repentance usually hurt. Confession requires us to admit things about ourselves that we don't like, that we don't want to think about. In Psalm 51, uh, 51, 8, and Psalm 51 is, I think, maybe my favorite psalm. Um, but, but Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after the prophet Nathan had confronted him over his sin with Bathsheba. And in verse 8, David writes this. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That David is actually thanking God for breaking his bones because that was the thing that David needed to see in order to be restored. That gospel surgery is free, but it is not easy. And I think there's a there's, there's such a, a beautiful and vivid picture, and you already know where I'm going with this, but um, it's from the voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Uh, you know that story in the Chronicles of Narnia and um, I love uh, I love the way that Lewis begins that book. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and, and he almost deserved to be named that. Um, but we find out about Eustace that that he's just a, he's a terrible person. Nobody likes him, um, and they're and they're on the Dawn Treader, and he finds this uh, he finds this dragon's lair with a treasure in it, and so he hoards the treasure and protects it for himself. And as he does this, he finds out that he actually turns into a dragon. And he doesn't want to be a dragon, and so he does everything he can to try to not be a dragon. But what he finds is when he tries to peel the scales off, all he does is peel it off and just find more scales underneath. And then, and then Aslan the great lion shows up, and Lewis writes this. He says, then the lion said, but I, I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like a bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't much like it, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found out all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. Because I turned into a boy again. That Eustace's restoration was painful. Peter's restoration was painful. And your restoration and mine is painful. Because when Jesus comes, as Aslan did to Useless, when Jesus comes to us, even those of us that love to pretend like we're open books, right? Like you, can, you know everything about me, right? But, but we've heard this analogy before, some of you have, that like, eh, but I'm not going to let you open that particular chapter. That Jesus' restoration does that. That that's where he wants to go. 
So we don't fix anything by trying to be less anxious or less depressed or numbing or um, doing any of the feel good Friday stuff or forgetting the past or like whatever. Like I'm fine with feel good Friday, but like <laughs> you need more than that. You need more than that. And you can come pet Bo whenever you want, that, whatever. Um, no, we, we, we fix these things by taking them to Jesus and by trusting that even though it may hurt, that he's promised us that he will never break a bruised reed and he will not turn away a hurting heart. Go read the book, Gentle and Lowly, because it's all about Christ's heart to sinners, that he will not turn you away. But then look at what Jesus does with Peter, right? We've, we've talked about failure. We've met Peter in his failure, in his shame. And then Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you remember how you failed me? Remember how in my greatest moment of need, you abandoned me and left me and embarrassed and disappointed everybody? Remember that? Great. Now go be my representative to the world. Like, what? That'd be like you getting called to the dean of, like I, Dr. Buckner's office, I don't know, like whoever, whoever deals with like cheating, right? Like, like you, like you get caught cheating and, and they sit you down and they're like, all right, you know, you've broken all these honor codes you've done, you know, you deserve to be kicked out of school and we want to put you in our next ad campaign to say, Hey, come to Carson Newman. Right. That's crazy. Right. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Like, it makes no sense. But Jesus' response to Peter's failure is to tell him he loves him, eat breakfast with him, and then commission him to go and be his representative to the world. And it's actually in such a way that he would end up dying for Jesus. That when it talks about, you know, somebody's going to lead you where you don't want to go, that, that John puts in parentheses, like, that's explaining how Peter's going to die. And early church legend, I don't think we know this for sure, but early church legend has it that Peter was actually crucified upside down. That Jesus commissioned him after his failure to go and to die for the gospel. Here's the point. We approach failure like that's it. We approach it like it's the end and that there's nothing after that. But what if Jesus actually isn't ready to use you until you know what a failure you are? So I hate all of the, you know, you're enough or like you matter or like whatever. Because, because repeating you are enough over and over again is nothing. It doesn't help because it doesn't do anything about the nagging feeling you have inside of your heart that you're not enough because you're not. But that's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you is in that place that you come to that realization that you're not. Because what if, what if your failure, what if the greatest moment of shame in your life, the thing you want to forget the most, what if that's not the end of your life, but the beginning? Imagine for a second that Peter hadn't failed, right? Imagine that Peter, uh, the brash, uh, loud, confrontational apostle that um, he always was throughout, throughout the gospels. Imagine that in Jesus's trial and crucifixion, uh, he stood up like, no, that's my friend. Like, this is wrong. You got to stop. You got to back off. He gets arrested, right? He gets beaten, maybe tortured a little bit. And then after the resurrection, he comes to Jesus and he's like, yeah, I stood up for you. I was strong for you. Yeah, you, you and your grace, like you helped me out a little bit, but, but ultimately 
I got it done. I took a stand. What would that Peter be like? And I think, I think we know what that Peter would be like because I think we've probably all been around leaders like that. They, they, they lead with guilt and with shame and with the understanding that you're never going to be as good or as strong as they are. But by failing, by failing, Peter had no delusion. He had no false notion of who he was. He knew what he'd done. And now he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus loved him. So what if, what if Jesus doesn't use you in spite of your failure, but because of him? What if that thing that you think disqualifies you from the love of Christ is the very thing that actually qualifies you to receive it? Because Jesus says those who are well don't think they need a physician. But he takes your failure, he meets you in it, he restores you from it, and then he sends you out now fully knowing what's always been true. That Jesus is for you. And when you go out to live the life that he's calling you to, knowing that he's already for you because your failure has proven that, the college campus feels a whole lot more like a playground than a proving ground. That you can go and enjoy the things that God has given you to do because you know that he loves you versus spending every waking second trying to earn his forgiveness, earn his favor, earn stature, earn whatever. It's a whole lot more like a playground than it is a proving ground. And I love, we didn't read this, but I love that at the end of, uh, at the end of John 21, John writes that if, that if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, the earth itself would not be big enough to contain the books. And part of what I think he's doing there is John is saying, if you think Peter was a failure, where do you hear all the stories you didn't hear? And yet Jesus continued to meet them there. I'm going to close with this. This is from a, a book called Seculosity um, by David Zoll. He writes this. In her memoir, Cherry, Mary Carr recounts just such an instance. When she was 14 years old, while her parents were out of the house, a miserable Mary tried to do herself in by swallowing a handful of pills. She was unsuccessful and wound up sick. When her mother and father returned home, they tenderly nursed her without suspecting the suicide attempt. They attributed the vomiting to food poisoning. After a while, her father asked her if there was any food she could stomach. All she thought she could eat would be a plum, but plums were out of season, and so she went to bed. The next morning, her father came into her room with a bushel of plums, having driven through the night from Texas to Arkansas to get them for her. And Mary remembers, but when it, it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck and the nectar runs down your chin and you snap out of it or you are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who gives enough of a damn to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that's coming, that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it, it's given. In that blinding instant, the justifying story of Mary's life switched tracks. Her performance revealed to be at best beside the point and at worst a liability when it came to what really mattered. 
And what mattered was the magnitude of the uncoerced generosity, so towering and inconceivable in proportion. And what Zal is saying there is that Mary Carr's lowest moment, the worst moment in her life, was the moment that she was able to fully grasp her father's love for her. This is not like, cheer up, every cloud has a silver lining, as if to make it sound like things aren't that bad. Because yes, things are that bad. But it is to show you that this is just how much Jesus loves you. And it's not, it's not a plum that he goes and gets you, but it's his body that's broken and it's his blood that's spilled. And so I think that this question, do you love me, is an invitation to see that your greatest failure is actually the moment that you need to sit in to see how great this news really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we can understand it. Father, thank you that you love failures like me. Father, thank you that you have seen the deepest and the darkest and the most shameful places of my heart and you've spoken to them and you've restored them. Lord, I pray for those of us tonight that are struggling with this, that are struggling with not knowing what to do with our shame, not knowing what to do with our past, not knowing what to do with the things that have happened to us. Lord, would you meet us there? Father, would you feed us with your generosity, with your grace? Lord, for those of us here tonight that have not yet trusted this, Lord, would tonight be the night? Would tonight be the night that we can stop running, that we can stop hiding from our shame, we can stop hiding from the things that keep us awake at night, but we can sit down by the fire with you and to talk about them? Lord, would you deal with them? Would you help us to see our sin and our shame through the light of your grace? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.